Well, a few weeks ago, if you were here, uh, I, told, uh, an over, uh, I told a story about an overwhelming situation that I found myself in, involving a volcano in Guatemala. Some of you might remember this, right? Uh, I, I made a very misguided decision when I was in Guatemala, and I signed up for a mountain biking experience on a volcano, despite having no real mountain biking experience. And it ended up being pretty intense, pretty overwhelming. This morning, I'm going to tell you about an underwhelming experience that I had involving a volcano while I was on the same trip in Guatemala. See, the program uh, that brought me to Guatemala was this program called Out of Town. It was one of those one-year discipleship programs that's designed for people in the transitional phase between uh, high school and post-secondary. And there was two places that you could sign up to, uh, to travel to through this program. You could go to South Africa or you could go to Guatemala. And all of the promotional materials for the Guatemala site uh, had pictures of people um, climbing this volcano called Pacaya Volcano. It's one of the most active volcanoes in Guatemala. And in these pictures, people would be like standing beside rivers of lava. It was extremely cool. It was very hardcore. And so naturally, this is the site that I ended up signing up for. And when we got to Guatemala, everyone on my team was looking forward to this adventure, to having the opportunity to climb Pacaya. And then eventually, finally, at last, the day came. Now, we were all really excited about the lava, but none of us had really taken the time to consider what the experience of climbing a volcano might actually be like. And at first, it was a lot like climbing a mountain. There were like nice, easy trails. There was beautiful, lush greenery and nice views everywhere. But as the elevation increased, the hike started to get a little bit more challenging. The greenery kind of faded away, and the wind picked up, and stones and debris started like blowing against our faces. It wasn't a very nice day, and eventually it got so intense that we had people like dropping out, deciding that they couldn't go any further. It was too hard that they were, they were just going to stay where they were and wait for the rest of us to come back. But there was a group of us who were really excited about the lava, right? And so we stuck with it, and we kept going until finally our tour guide stopped us. And he gathered us all around this section of discolored rock. And it was kind of smoking a little bit. There it is. You can see it up in the picture there. And he said a few words that I didn't really understand. He gave us a moment to take some pictures. And then he turned around and he started going back down the trail. And so we were all like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where's the lava? Like, what's going on here? 
as it turned out, as he explained what was going on, the weather conditions were too poor for us to go any further. It was too windy, it was too dangerous. And so rather than standing beside rivers of flowing lava, our volcano experience peaked with a discolored section of rock that was some sort of sulfur vent. I don't know. We went to Guatemala expecting an exciting, adrenaline-filled volcano climbing adventure with raging rivers of lava and pictures to go home and show to our friends, but we went home with this lousy, pathetic picture of discolored rocks. It was extremely underwhelming. And maybe you found yourself in one of those situations before where you went into a situation expecting big things, where you were expecting an experience that would transform your life or your relationships or that would make a difference in the world and you walked away questioning whether anything had really changed at all. And why there was this massive gap between your expectations and the reality that you'd experienced. We are in our second week of a new series on the kingdom of God. And when Jesus came into the world announcing that the kingdom of God had arrived in him, he entered into a culture that had some really clear expectations about what that should look like. Jesus came into a world where the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah who would finally set things right for them once and for all. They were expecting a king who was going to come in with a bang and conquer the Romans and put the Israelites into a position of power, who was going to lead Israel into a time of peace and prosperity. The Jewish people were expecting a Messiah who stood out in a crowd, who couldn't be missed. They were expecting success and status. They were expecting efficiency and results. They were expecting mountaintop experiences. And ultimately, they were expecting victory. And then along came Jesus. And he just didn't seem to fit the mold. There was this massive gap between what people expected it to look like when the kingdom of God showed up and how things were actually working out as Jesus went about doing his ministry. And we can be sure that there were moments in time when Jesus' followers stood back and wondered, if this was really it. It all seemed a little bit underwhelming. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God had come near in him. But how could that be true when the Jewish people were still living in the oppression of the Romans? How could it really be true when the religious leaders, the ones that they figured had it all together, had it all figured out, rejected Jesus? How could it be true that the kingdom of God had come near in Jesus when there was still so much sin 
and brokenness and evil in the world around them. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells his disciples some parables to help them wrap their heads around the reality that the kingdom of God wasn't showing up in quite the way that they'd been expecting. And to help them understand that this wasn't an indicator that something had gone wrong. It was actually a reflection of the reality that the kingdom of God was completely countercultural. It's subversive. It takes our upside down world and it turns it right side up again. It shows up in ways that defy all of our expectations. Now, throughout this section, Jesus teaches using parables. And parables are stories that give people glimpses into the deeper truths of the kingdom. They're stories that are designed to help people see the world in a whole new way, through a kingdom lens. And they're designed to give listeners the opportunity to reflect on where they find themselves in the story so that they can adjust the way that they're thinking and the way that they're living to line up with the way of life that Jesus was inviting them into. And he offers us the same invitation when we read the parables today. So chapter 13 starts with a parable about a farmer scattering seeds. And we're not going to go through that parable in depth because we actually looked at it not that long ago. And so if you uh, need a refresher, you can go back and find it on our YouTube channel. But this morning, we are going to look at the next parable that Jesus tells, which is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to start at verse 24. So it says this, here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds? They asked. No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I'll tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. So a farmer goes out to plant some feet, uh, seeds in his field. So far, this is a very relatable story, right, for some of you in our Norfolk County context. And the next night, while his workers were sleeping, an enemy comes in and plants a bunch of weeds and then sneaks away. And now this isn't a crime that you hear about too much in our day and age, at least as, as far as I know. I don't know, maybe, maybe farmers could tell a different story. I'm not sure, Tom, is this something you guys do when things get spicy? Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, so we don't hear about this too much, about, about people sneaking into fields and, and messing up other people's crops with weeds, but believe it or not, there was actually a law in Jesus' time that said that you couldn't sow poisonous weeds in another person's field. So apparently, when rivalries broke out between farmers, things got this out of control. And so an enemy comes and plants weeds, but no one notices until the plants start to grow. And then finally, the workers start to realize what has happened, and they go to the farmer with two questions. The first one is this, where did the weeds come from? Right? The workers know that the farmer only planted good seed in his field, and so they want to know where the weeds came from. And what does the farmer say? He says, an enemy, an enemy has done this. He makes it really clear that he's not the one who's responsible for the weeds. There was an enemy that had come and had planted the weeds when no one was watching. And the second question the workers ask is this, should we pull out the weeds? Now, this was a very reasonable suggestion, right? Weeds are bad news. They could harm the wheat that the farmer had planted and they could prevent him from ending up with a good crop. But what does the farmer say? No, he says, no, don't do it, right? Don't pull up the weeds because if you do, you're gonna pull up some of the wheat as you do it. Now, the farmer's concerns make sense because the roots of the wheat and the weeds could have been entangled, right? And it would be really challenging to try to pull one up without pulling up the other. But there was actually more going on here because in the Greek text, Jesus identifies a specific kind of weed. And some Bible translations maintain this, right? This is why we sometimes call this parable the parable of the wheat and the tares. The weeds are tares. And tares were poisonous weeds called darnel that were almost identical to wheat when the plants were young. It was very, very difficult to tell the dew apart. It's like a counterfeit. It's a plant that appears to be good, that appears to be the real thing, but is actually a poisonous weed. And so the farmer doesn't want his workers to go out there and to pull up the weeds because they're bound to get mixed up about what's what. He doesn't trust their judgment. He knows that if they go, they'll end up pulling up some Wheat, thinking it's a weed, and leave behind some weeds, thinking that it was actually wheat, right? He doesn't trust their ability to discern one from the other. And so he tells the workers to let the plants grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, the plants could be easily separated. They were easy enough to tell apart, and the weeds could be bundled up and burned. This was the one useful purpose the weeds actually had. This was actually a, a world where Fuel was difficult to, to come by, and so they would burn the weeds, and the wheat could be gathered up and put in the barn. So Jesus uh, shares this parable 
with the crowd of people who are there listening. And then he continues teaching. And a little bit later, down in verse 36, Matthew tells us that Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes into a house with just him and his disciples. And his disciples ask him to explain the meaning of the parable. Okay, so we're going to jump ahead and look at what Jesus says about that. Verse 36. This is what he says. Then leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. The disciples said, please explain to us the story of the wheat, or sorry, the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man, and that's Jesus, uh, the, the title that Jesus most often uses to speak about himself. The son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they'll remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Who's uncomfortable? Anyone? Sometimes when we come to passages like this one, like the passages that talk about the weeping and the gnashing of the teeth, it's tempting to just kind of skip over them because we don't really know what to do with it. Right? Once we get to the part of the passage where Jesus talks about judgment, it sucks up all of our attention and we can lose sight of what Jesus was really trying to say, the point that he was trying to make through the parable. And so we'll come back to the judgment part, but what is really going on here? What is the issue that Jesus is speaking to through this parable? Remember, this is a section of scripture where Jesus is addressing the reality that the kingdom of God had arrived, but it wasn't showing up in the way that everyone had been expecting. And one of the biggest questions that people tend to wrestle with when it comes to faith is this. Why does evil exist? If God is really present, if the kingdom of God has really broken into the world, how do we make sense of the bad things that happen? And as followers of Jesus, how are we called to live in light of the, the reality of evil that is all around us? And this is exactly what Jesus is speaking to in this parable. Jesus is addressing the fact that evil exists, that the kingdom of God has arrived. It's broken into the world, but it hasn't yet come in its fullness. And until it does, we're living in this already not yet reality where God is on the move, but so is the enemy, where good and evil exist in the same space. Now, there were different groups of Jewish people who had taken different 
approaches to dealing with evil in Jesus' time. There was a group of Jewish people called the Essenes, and they believed that they were the true people of God. And so they went out into the desert and they lived in communities together and they followed really strict laws and rules that were designed to keep them pure. So they dealt with evil by uh, shutting out the rest of the world. There was another group of Jewish people called the Pharisees, right? We all know and love the Pharisees. Scripture talks about these guys a lot. And the Pharisees dealt with evil by becoming experts in the rules and the rituals. They didn't separate themselves physically from the rest of the world, but they separated themselves socially. They were gatekeepers. They had really clear boundaries of who was in and who was out, and they made sure that everyone knew where they stood. And there was another group of Jewish people in this time called the Zealots. And the Zealots were a group of revolutionaries who were trying to overthrow Rome so that the Jewish people could be free. So they were trying to conquer evil by force, through violence. Different groups of Jewish people had different understandings of what evil looked like and of what they needed to do to either confront it or to separate themselves from it but they all expected that when the Messiah came, he would confront evil once and for all, and he would put the people who perpetuated it in their place. And yet here, Jesus says that there's gonna be a period of time where the weeds and the wheat need to grow together. And he doesn't want the workers to go out into the field and to tear up all of the weeds because they're bound to get it wrong sometimes. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't hold each other accountable, right? Or that we shouldn't speak up against injustice. But remember, he has called his followers to a way of living that involves loving their enemies and giving up their right for revenge and laying down their lives for others. And the evil that they encounter doesn't give them a pass on any of that. Jesus doesn't want his followers taking matters into their own hands and going on crusades to eliminate evil when they don't have the qualifications to do it properly. They don't see the big picture. They don't always know what God's up to or what he's doing in someone else's life. Scripture is full of people who could have been written off as weeds, but had their lives transformed by Christ. I mean, look at Paul. Paul persecuted Christians. He killed Christians. That dude seemed like a weed. And then he had an encounter with Christ. And God transformed him and he became the apostle that spread the good news to the Gentiles and ended up writing a good portion of the New Testament that we have today. Jesus says, let the weeds and the wheat grow together because you're not that good at telling the difference between the two. Your job is to plant wheat. Plant 
the seeds of God's kingdom everywhere you go and trust that God is a good judge, that he's gonna take care of evil in the end. And so when Jesus gets to the part of the passage where he talks about judgment, within this context, he's actually offering his listeners hope. He's giving them reassurance that God is gonna make things right that the evil that's destroying the world around them and the people that they love will be taken care of. And Jesus uses symbols from the book of Daniel to describe the final judgment. That's where we get the images of the angels and the fiery furnace and the gnashing of teeth and the righteous shining like the sun. These are promises that were made to the Israelites when they were in Babylon, promises that God's was gonna judge the evil nations and make things right. So this is a word of challenge, right? Because it makes it really clear that God takes evil seriously. It makes it really clear that he's gonna deal with it appropriately, but it's also a word of hope and grace because no matter how messed up and broken our, our world might be, we can trust that God is gonna set things right, that he's committed to restoring his good creation. And so how does this parable challenge us to reorient our lives towards the kingdom? How is it calling us to live differently? This morning, we're gonna look at three invitations that I think Jesus extends to us through this parable. The first one is this. This parable invites us into hope. Just like the disciples, it's tempting for us to look around at the state of the world and at the state of the church and to question how God's kingdom could really be among us. If Jesus wasn't so upfront about what we can expect as we live out our lives in this world, it would be easy to look around and conclude that something had gone wrong with God's plan to redeem and restore all things. That either God is off of his throne or that he's really not actually that good. But Jesus tells us that until he comes again, we can expect to suffer, we can expect to face hard times. And we can be sure that there's gonna be times where we're face to face with evil in the world. And he makes sure that his disciples understand that evil doesn't come from God. And the fact that it exists doesn't mean that God is absent or out of control. The story just isn't finished yet. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus gives his disciples one of my very least favorite promises in all of scripture. He says this, in this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't say, in this world, you might have trouble. He doesn't say, in this world, the people who reject me are gonna have trouble. He says to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he goes on to say, but take heart. 
take heart, for I have overcome the world. We know how the story's gonna end. It's just not finished yet. Second Peter 3 verse nine says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Scripture tells us that the reason God is holding off on the final judgment is because he wants to give people the time and the space to change, to turn to him. And we're called to be people who have eyes to see the ways that God is working to bring about his kingdom in the world and to join him in the good work that he's doing. The parable invites us to be people who hold on to hope even in the midst of the darkest situations and our world is desperate for people who have hope. The second thing that this parable invites us into is peace. Jesus is inviting his disciples into the peace that comes from trusting God. Most of us, if we're honest, live as though we're the ones who are responsible to decide who's good and who's bad, and then to make sure that justice is served when evil takes place. And that is a very heavy weight to be carrying in a world like ours, my friends. And the reason that we gravitate towards being the sin police is because we see the harm that's caused by evil. Right? And we know deep in our guts that it's wrong, that something needs to be done about it. But God cares more about evil than we do. And he's way more qualified than we are to take care of it. Right? We don't know people's hearts. We don't see the big picture when we're dealing with complex situations and conflict. We aren't good judges. Romans 12 verse 19 says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. God is the only righteous judge. And so Jesus calls his followers to patience. Really, that's what he's calling to He's calling them to patience. To live in the world with a deep sense of trust that God is going to set things Right, and with the peace that comes from holding on to faith that God will keep his promises, that he's got it under control, that we can trust him. And the third thing that this, impar- that this parable invites us into is freedom. Freedom to love boldly and to use our gifts to serve others and to do the things that God's calling us to do. When we feel like we are responsible for keeping everyone else in line, we end up spending all of our energy and our time and our attention keeping track of what other people are doing right and what other people are doing wrong and then deciding how they deserve to be treated accordingly. When we can just trust that God is going to do the judging and do it fairly, we can stop reducing ourselves into fans and critics. And we're free to really just love people. A few years ago, I was on my way to work in Hamilton, 
And I was a little bit early, so I decided to go to Tim Hortons on my way. And it was one of those Tim Hortons where there really isn't enough space to accommodate like the long drive-through lineups. And so the parking lot situation can get a little bit chaotic. I'm sure some of you have experienced this at various Tim Hortons. And so I pulled in, and I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, there was a man in his vehicle waiting to back out of one of the parking spots that the drive-through line was blocking. And specifically, so it was the car ahead of me and the front end of my vehicle that were in his way. And so this guy wanted to get out and he started to rev his engine and to kind of inch his vehicle backwards, I guess to communicate non-verbally that he was displeased. He wasn't happy about being trapped. And I mean, like I felt bad, but there was nowhere I could go at this point. There was like a car behind me. I couldn't pull ahead. And then a minute later, uh, he, he, he started to reverse. He started to actually back up towards me. And so, you know, this is all happening in slow motion as it does. And I laid on my horn just to like, make sure that he knew I was there. It's like a gentle, not, a, not an angry horn, just, just a loud and clear, hello, I'm here, kind of horn pressing situation. And honestly, I've, I really believe that this guy would stop. Like, I'm, I, most people aren't willing to smash up their car <laughs> in order to prove a point. But he kept coming <laughs> until he hit my car. Like, he actually hit my car. Actually, it was my mom's car. I'd borrowed my mom's car conveniently. And so he hit my mom's car. I couldn't believe it. And uh, the two of us got out of our vehicles, and I looked at him with just this perplexed look on my face. And I said, the only thing I could think to say, I said, why did you do that? <laughs> like, I wasn't even, I was confused. I said, why did you do that? I was sure he'd seen me or heard me. I mean, there was even a, a guy on the sidewalk waving his arms trying to get this guy's attention. I couldn't figure it out. And he said, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry, that clown in front of you, he didn't say clown, I just can't say what he said in church, he said, that clown ahead of you wouldn't move up. I didn't even notice that you'd pulled in. So suddenly it all made sense. He had tunnel vision. He was so ticked that the person ahead of me had been blocking him in that he wasn't paying attention to anything else, not to his rearview mirror, not to the blaring horn behind him, not to the man dancing on the sidewalk. In his anger, he'd lost sight of everything else that was going on around him. And we can do the same kind of thing. The book of James says this, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And listen to this. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Sometimes we get tricked into believing that it does, that anger is exactly the thing 
that produces the righteousness that God desires. If you were to go out onto the streets and talk to a bunch of random people about Christians and what they believe, I guarantee you that they would talk about all of the different things and the different issues and the different people that they believe Christians are against. The church has become known for what we are against. But I don't know that many people would be able to tell you what Christians actually stand for. In scripture, we don't see Jesus taking a stand against issues. We see Jesus taking a stand for people and standing with people. And in that, of course, there was sin that needed to be repented of, and there was oppression that people needed to be set free from, and there was truth that needed to be told, but the focus was on the people. Jesus wanted to see people experience the real life and the real love that God had designed them for. He didn't stand against issues. He stood with people, and in love, he invited them into his hope and his wholeness and his freedom. And he calls us to do the same thing. The parable invites us to be people who love boldly and to extend God's kingdom to everyone we meet without needing to do the math to determine whether or not they deserve it. For the last few years, I've had a little post-it note on the bulletin board in my office with the words, put the ball in the net, written on it. And if you've come into my office and you've noticed that, maybe you have wondered why, because I certainly don't have the hand-eye coordination to play basketball. And it came from a story that I heard Danielle Strickland share in a message that stuck with me ever since. And so I put that note up there as a reminder. I'm going to share the story with you. Uh, what happened was Danielle was coaching a girls basketball team at a high school and they were playing a game. And during the game, one of the girls on the other team was being a bit aggressive and she kind of uh, ticked off a couple of players on Danielle's team. And throughout the game, things kind of kept escalating. And more and more girls got pulled into the drama and they started trying to get back at this one player that they had a problem with until eventually the whole team became consumed with just trying to put this girl in her place. Like not even just on the, on the court, they were calling her names, it was getting ugly. It became their entire focus. They weren't even worried about how they were playing anymore. They just wanted to get back at this girl. And so Danielle called the team together and she looked at them and she said, what are you doing? And, you know, the girls responded. They said, you know, we're, we're getting back at this girl. She's being aggressive. We're getting back at her. And Danielle looked at them and she said, is that really what you want? Is that why you're here? Is that what you want out of this game to send this girl home in tears? Is that your goal here today? And they just kind of stared at her blankly, not knowing what to say. There was a moment of pause. And then Danielle looked at her team and she just said this, put the ball in the net. 
put the ball in the net. The team had gotten so consumed with trying to put this girl in her place that they had forgotten why they were there. They were there to play basketball, not to send a girl home crying. They were there to put the ball in the net. When we look around at all of the brokenness and the evil around us, it's easy to get pulled off course, to get distracted trying to take matters into our own hands and put people in their place. But God has called us to be people who reflect his love and who live out the good news of his kingdom in our world. That's what we're here to do. That's what it looks like to put the ball in the net. And when we trust that God is faithful and that one day he's gonna set things right once and for all, we can do it with a deep sense of hope, even in the midst of darkness, and with peace in knowing that it's not all up to us, and in the freedom to love others boldly and to extend his kingdom to everyone without trying to figure out whether or not they deserve it.